let's look at our passage. Luke um, chapter 20. And uh, I'll be, uh, we'll be studying Luke uh, 20 verses 9 to 19. I ask if you please stand with me out of reverence for the word of God. Luke 20 verse 9. And he began to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard and let it out to tenants and went to, to another country for a long while. When the time came, he sent a servant to the tenants so that they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. He sent another servant, but this, but they also beat and treated him shamefully and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent yet a third. This one also they wounded and cast out. Then the owner of the vineyard said, What shall I do? I will send my beloved son, perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Let us kill him so that the inheritance may be ours. And they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What then will the owner of that vineyard do to them? He will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. When they heard this, they said, Surely not. But he looked directly at them and said, What then is this that is written? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. When it falls on anyone, it will crush him. The scribes of the chief priests sought to lay hands on him at that very hour, for they perceived that he had told this parable against them. But they feared the people. This is the word of our Lord. May he write its eternal truths upon our hearts for his glory and for the building of his church. Please be seated and let's pray it again together. Almighty God, we praise you for your word and for the fact that your word accomplishes that for which you sent it. Father, we praise you that you have ordained that we who hear your word proclaimed this morning have been ordained by you to hear this word and to, to respond to this word. And Lord, we praise you for the Holy Spirit who works in hearts, Lord, granting repentance, repentance and faith. And Lord, we pray that you would give us all repentance and faith as we hear your word this morning. I pray that that would be true of, of those of us who are, are walking by your grace faithfully before you, for those who are, are stumbling along the way. And to a degree, we're all stumbling along the way. And we pray that it also be true for those who are hearing this word and are not yet Christ, that they would repent of their sin and turn to Christ in faith. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, as we get into our passage this morning, Jesus has arrived in Jerusalem. The time has almost come. It's only a few days before his crucifixion. And after clearing the merchants for the temple and preaching the gospel, a group consisting of chief priests and scribes and elders, the Sanhedrin, the religious ruling council, the supreme legal authority in Israel, challenged Jesus. They come to him and they challenge him by questioning his authority. As we saw last week, that Jesus silenced them by questioning them as to whether they believed that the authority of John the Baptist 
was from heaven or from men. And now as we look at our passage this morning, Jesus really goes on the offensive. Jesus is intentionally bringing things to a head. He's just turned over the tables of the merchants. Then he turned the tables on the Sanhedrin when they challenged him. Now he's putting it all on the table with the parable of the wicked tenants. Now, you've probably heard stories or seen television programs about so-called tenants from hell. Now, I don't like the flippant use of the term, but, but there's plenty of stories about tenants who make the lives of, of landowners, of their landlords, miserable. I read a, about a tenant who had rented a, a beautiful 1920s cabin by, by a lake. And this tenant drank himself to sleep and then dropped a cigarette onto the alcohol-soaked carpet. Well, you can imagine what happened next. The house burst into flames and he managed to escape, but the house burned to the ground. And he actually had the nerve to ask the landlords for his damage deposit back because the insurance company had reimbursed him and so he felt that he should be reimbursed by them. As I mentioned earlier, we have a, a restoration company working at our house right now and, and it, it's... And I figured, you know, I bet your restoration crews know a lot about, about so-called tenants from hell. And so I thought this would be a good opportunity for me to, to ask them uh, about, uh, for, for an illustration, and, and also an opportunity to witness to them. And they, they told me about marijuana grow-ups where the house had been completely destroyed and, and written off because of mold or, or another rental that had eight cats in, in a single room. And just they, they said that the, the mess and the, the stench in there was, was disgusting. It's full of all kinds of, of grossness. They, they told me about hoarders and even about having to clean up after dead bodies. But as bad as all of those tenants were, the tenants in Jesus' parable are far, far worse than any of them. And these tenants that we're going to hear about this morning really are from hell. Or at least are inflamed by hell. And these tenants will go to hell. Now, this parable is recorded in each of the synoptic gospel accounts in Matthew and, and Mark and Luke. And, and each one has a, has a very similar wording. And in this parable, Jesus provides an, an assessment of Israel's sinful history and the rejection of God's messengers and also of God's forbearance in responding to them. But we're mistaken if we, we leave the application of that parable only in Israel. The same can be said of all peoples throughout history. And likewise, we can see God's forbearance even to this day. But this parable doesn't only speak about the rejection of God historically. When Jesus spoke this parable, he was also saying what's going to happen. He's also saying how, how, how the, the people are, are going, to, going to reject him and in, in a few days' time they're going to hand him over and kill him. Jesus is saying what's going to happen. He's saying what, what, what foretelling the Jews' coming rejection of him. 
So Jesus is aiming the parable of the wicked tenants, especially at the religious leaders in Israel. At that time, it's immediate application. He knows full well what they desire to do to him. And he's telling them that he knows their wicked desires. He's telling them that they're going to succeed in their wicked desires. So again, this parable is in a, is a, is in a sense prophetic. As Jesus foretells his coming death. And Jesus is saying to the religious leaders, you are the wicked tenants. So in this parable, Jesus shows again how Israel responded to the prophets from God and how they're going to respond to the Son of God and how God will respond to such people. So I have just two um, key points from this passage, but it doesn't mean the sermon is going to be short. They're actually two long points, especially the first one. In verses 9 to 15a, we see man's rebellion and God's mercy. And then in verses 15b to 19, we see God's judgment and man's response. So again, this parable speaks of how the Jews repeatedly rebelled against God. And how God continually responded with mercy. But the, the rebellion only grows as they hand Jesus over to be killed. God's patience with them is not going to endure forever. He's going to send judgment upon them in due time. And so this parable also served as a warning for Israel. But again, this parable isn't just about Israel. It serves as a warning to the church at every age. It serves as a warning to you. Do not reject God's mercy. Do not reject God's Son. So then verses 9 to 15a, man's rebellion and God's mercy. Luke begins, and he began to tell the people this parable. Luke is saying here that, that this parable that Jesus tells is actually linked with what has just happened before, as I mentioned earlier. The, the, this ensuing parable from Jesus is directly related to the members of the Sanhedrin challenging Jesus. And again, Luke told us back in 9.14 that they wanted to destroy him, but the only thing stopping them from a human perspective was his popularity with the crowd. They feared what the crowd was, that the crowd would stop them or even kill them if they went after Jesus. So these, these men from the Sanhedrin then, then tried to diminish Jesus' popularity with the crowd by discrediting him. They figured if, if we diminish his popularity, then the people aren't going to be a problem for us. We can do whatever we want to Jesus. So they tried to discredit him. They, they demanded that Jesus tell them by what authority he was operating. And so again, Jesus answered a question with a question, asking them the source of John the Baptist's authority. And remember, they conferred among themselves what to say. They said that if, if John received his, his authority from heaven, Jesus is going to say, well, why didn't you believe him? And they thought, well, if we say that, that John the Baptist's authority was from man, then the people are going, to, are going to come after us. They're going to stone us. So they decided not to answer Jesus. Jesus says, neither am I going to answer you. But remember, if they had answered Jesus' question, they would have, have really answered their own question. For John had clearly come with authority from God. And he clearly declared Jesus' authority had also come from God. So John was a prophet sent by God, and Jesus was the Son sent by God. So you see how this, this really is a warm-up to the, the parable that, that we're looking at this morning. 
So in this parable, first, Jesus shows how Israel responded to the prophets from God and how they're going to respond to the Son of God. A man planted a vineyard and let it out to tenants and then went into another country for a long while. And when the time came, he, he sent a servant for, for some of the grapes of the vineyard. Now this landowner wasn't he wasn't lending, it wasn't letting out the, the vineyard for charity. It was it was an investment property. And and having some of the grapes from his own property was his right. But the tenants beat the servant and sent him away with nothing but his injuries. And so the landlord sent another tenant. And this one they treated even worse. They, they beat him and treated him shamefully. So he had he left with his injuries and his humiliation. The landowner then sent a third servant. And again, this one they treated even worse than the previous two. Note the escalation. They, they wounded him and they cast him out. That This word translated wounded is traumatizo. They inflicted trauma upon him. This refers to something that would, would cause a, a permanent scar on the body. They, then they, they, so they traumatized him, and then they cast him out. They, they expelled him. Now the owner of the, this property said, said, well, what should I do? I'll send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. Again, this adds to the, the parable's tension. This, the stakes are, are much higher now. This is the landowner's son. This is his beloved son. His beloved son. Think about that. We'll come back to it in a moment. Perhaps they'll respect him, but they don't. The, the, these tenants see the son coming, and they say to themselves, this is the heir. Let's kill him. So the inheritance may be ours. So they must have assumed that the landowner was dead and that, that so in, in killing the son, they could then take, take hold. And there were cases where, where in, the, in the case of, a, of a, a lack of an heir, that the, the, the tenants would actually receive the land that, that they had been working. Well, so this is their plan. They think, if, hey, if we can get away with this, the land's going to be ours. So their motive is money and the means is murder. They, they threw the son out of the vineyard and they killed him. It's appalling. This parable is, is meant to make you gasp. You know, I was talking to the, to the crew, again, cleaning our house the other day about this. And, and when I asked them for examples of, of bad tenants and, and talked about what this parable and what it said, they they, they looked appalled. They, they were shocked by it. And I explained to them, I said, well, this is a parable. It's, it's not a real event, but it, it's a story that's meant to relay a message, to, again, to open the eyes uh, of those who are being saved and to blind those who are not. So we need to ask, well, well what is the, the message of this parable? What is, is Jesus saying and why? Okay, we talked about, about this many times, but, but a parable... It is not meant to be dissected so that every single detail has some, some hidden meaning. It's called allegorizing. You okay, know, usually it's the, it's the main characters and the main 
elements of the parable that, came, that relay the main point of the parable. So in this parable, then the, the first question that we, we need to ask is, well, who is the landowner? I think that was really easy, that the landowner represents God. Okay, next, so, so what is the vineyard? Well, the vineyard represents the nation of Israel. And you can really see this in the parables of, of this, this, this uh, sort of the parallels of this parable in Matthew and Mark. Matthew 21 and Mark 5 both refer to the, the landowner tenderly caring for his vineyard and, and putting a fence around the vineyard and digging a wine press in it and building a tower. So, and this, these, these are, are elements that are, are clearly there in Isaiah chapter 5, verses 1 to 7. Let's just go there for a moment. Isaiah chapter 5. Verses 1 to 7. Look at, at verse 1. You see the, the clear reference to a, a vineyard. Okay, And then in verse 2, this is where we see the specific details that, that are related in, in Matthew um, and Mark. He's, he's building a watchtower and, and a wine vat. And notice that Isaiah 5 also reveals the, the sin in the vineyard. And again, the landowner looks for return on investment, but he gets, not exactly apparel, he doesn't get nothing, he gets wild grapes. So wild grapes would have been sour and virtually inedible. Then verses 5 and 6, you see the judgment on the vineyard. We're going to talk about that in a few moments. And in verse 7, Isaiah says directly, For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel. Specifically, the vineyard is Israel. God looked for justice and it yielded bloodshed. He looked for righteousness, but found an outcry. So then the landowner is God, and the vineyard is Israel, but who are the tenants? The tenants are the Jews, particularly the Jewish leadership. But again, even though the leadership is the, the most direct target in this parable, the people are viewed as well, because, because the leadership is, broadly speaking, a, a reflection of the people. Now just think for a moment about the privileges that the Jews had. Okay, they, they were entrusted, to begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God, Romans 3.2. And to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them beyond the, belong the patriarchs, and from, accord, from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. Romans 9, verses 4 and 5. So the question then is, is what were the Jews doing with these privileges? Were they investing their privileges for the glory of God? The, the tenants hadn't sought the glory of God, but their own benefit. They, they sought their own comfort and they sought their own sin. The Jews had huge responsibilities, huge privileges, and therefore they had huge responsibilities. As, as 19th century Scottish theologian James Foote, not to be confused with Billy James Foote, who wrote the, the questionable hymn. I'll talk about that another time if, you, if you're not familiar with it. But James Foote, the 19th century Scottish theologian, said the Jews, especially the priests and the rulers who held all the advantages under the express condition of improving them for the glory of God. Again, the privileges were to be, to be improved for the glory of God. They were to to take the privileges that they had had and to use them to glorify God and invest in the kingdom of God. So, so that tells us who is the, the landowner and the vineyard 
and the tenants, but then who are the servants? Well, the servants represent the prophets who God sent to the Jews to call them to repentance. But we know what happened throughout the history of Israel again and again and again and again. The people of Israel rejected the prophets. Jeremiah 25 uh, verses 4 to, 4 to 7. You have neither listened. Let's read verses 4 and 5. You have neither listened nor inclined your ears to hear, although the Lord persistently sent to you all his servants, the prophets, saying, Turn now every one of you from his evil way and his evil deeds and dwell upon the land that the Lord has given you and your fathers from old and forever. So initially, how did the landowner respond to these wicked tenants and to their abuse of his servants? He sent more and more. More and more, and each servant was treated worse than the previous ones. And in Matthew, Jesus speaks of another group of servants being sent, and in Mark, he mentions several servants being sent and said that some are, are beaten and some were, were killed. Just consider a few of the prophets that God had sent to Israel. Many were treated shamefully. Many were, were killed by the people they had come to help. Moses. Rejected. Elijah, rejected. Isaiah, sawn in half. Jeremiah, thrown in a pit and stoned. That's just a few of them. Now Jesus has, has already indicted the religious authorities. Remember back in, in Luke chapter 11, verses 47 to 51. In verse 47, Jesus reads, Woe to you, speaking to the, the Pharisees there, a particular aspect of the religious leadership. Woe to you, for you build the tombs of the prophets whom your fathers killed. Right? You build the tombs of the prophets your fathers killed. So what he's saying is, is you are just like your forefathers. They killed the prophets, and you are participating in the deeds of them by building their tombs. Now, some might suggest that the landowner was, was somehow unkind in sending servants to, to face such treatment. That's really beyond the, the point of this parable. And even still, that's, that's actually looking at things from a human perspective, from an earthly perspective. Because we know that God rewards his servants in eternity that for, for any ill treatment, any hardship that is received in this life. I'm sure those, those Old Testament prophets that, that, were, that were, were killed by Israel aren't, aren't regretting what they did or or even grieving what the people did to them, that they were rejoicing that it meant for them, it meant their entrance into their heavenly reward. And that's still true of our brothers and sisters in this day who are, who are being persecuted for the, the sake of Christ. And even, and even for you, for any, any hardship or any mistreatment that you suffer at the hands of others because of Christ, you will not grieve that in eternal life. It will actually be used to, to bring glory, it'll, it'll, you'll see how it was brought to bring glory to God, and you'll see that you actually get a benefit, an eternal benefit from that. So this parable shows us something profound about God. That God doesn't immediately wipe out rebellious tenants. Aren't you thankful? If, you, if you're sitting here alive, it's because God does not wipe out Immediately, unfaithful tenants. You, you, God had mercy on you long enough so you could hear the gospel and repent and receive the righteousness of Christ. 
God shows these wicked tenants mercy again and again and again. Again and again and again, he gives them an opportunity to repent. So in this sense, that the prophets were God's outstretched arm, calling his people to turn from their sin and to follow him. But the prophets were also something else. The prophets were also a picture that points ahead to God's greatest mercy of all. The, the, the prophets were, were really types foreshadowing God's greatest mercy in sending his son. That's the mercy we see here in this, te- in this parable. The landowner, God, sends his son. He sends his beloved son. I, I, I hope your, your mind immediately goes to John 3.16. But God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son that whoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. Your mind also should go to, to Luke chapter 3 of the, of, the, of the baptism of Jesus where there's a voice from heaven saying, this is my beloved son, listen to him. And also the transfiguration in Luke chapter 9 where we hear it again, this is my beloved son, listen to him. So, so God is the landowner who sends his beloved son. And here we, we see this soliloquy where the, the landowners is, is wondering, maybe they'll, maybe they'll respect the son. Well, of course, God knows full well that they're not going to respect the son. Right? The, the crucifixion was not God's plan B. This was God's plan in eternity past between the, the members of the Trinity as they d- devised a plan whereby God's righteousness and holiness could be upheld and also God's grace and God's mercy be upheld. It's never God's plan B. God doesn't have to wonder, what if? Behold the mercy of God. He does not destroy the Jews in their rebellion. He gives them an opportunity to respect the Son, to find life in the Son. But how do they respond to the Son? They cast him out of the vineyard and killed him. Again, Jesus is speaking here prophetically because in a few days' time, they're going to hand him over to the Romans for crucifixion. Now, I don't know if Jesus meant it to this level of detail in the parable, but Jesus, the Jews would literally cast Jesus outside of the city walls and kill him. He was crucified outside of the city. And we think of the, the wounds on that, on that third servant that, that left a mark. Well, these the marks from Jesus' wounds, as we sang this morning, will be visible for all eternity. Those wounds yet visible above. You'll be able to see the, the, the scars in, in Jesus' wrists and in his side, and his feet, from his crucifixion. They, they will be there for all eternity. So there's a message, there's a warning here for the Jews. But again, this is not just about Jews. Again, from James Foote, he explained that the same principle of improving spiritual advantages for the glory of God is applied to all who are possessed with similar privileges. Friends, you and I are the tenants. We all need to consider how this parable applies to us. It undoubtedly applies to me. As a pastor, I have great privileges. I have the privilege of spending much of my time, even I'm even more privileged in this sense than, than Joshua, that I can spend much of my time studying the Word of God. 
And I have the privilege of, of standing here week by week proclaiming the Word of God. I said, I have to ask myself the question, am I being faithful in my study? Am I being faithful to live out and to proclaim the truths that, that, I'm, that I'm studying? Am I, am I faithful to proclaim them in the, in the body? To live it out before the body? Am I being faithful to live out and to, and to proclaim these truths in my family? Am I being faithful to, to live out and to proclaim these truths in my community? Am I using the privileges that God has given me to advance His kingdom? Again, James, James 3.1, that, that not many should become teachers because teachers will be under a stricter judgment. It's a stricter judgment, but it's the same standard. All of us will be judged by the same standard, which is God's perfect righteousness. It's not just for pastors, it's for all Christians. We've, we've all been given the treasure of the gospel in jars of clay. We've all been, been given regenerate hearts through the power of the Holy Spirit. We all have access to the Word of God through the, the, inspire, the inspiring of God's Word by the Holy Spirit and the indwelling of the Spirit in our hearts so that we can understand and begin to live out these, these truths by His power. But there are also particular privileges that, that you have because you are part of this particular church family. And I don't claim to have the corner on this. We, there are many churches... Sadly, I wish there were far more, but there are many churches that have these same, same privileges. Do you attend a church where the Word of God is believed and taught? That's true here. Praise God. Children, many of you also have the particular advantage of being, being brought up in a home where God is worshipped and, and where Christ is proclaimed. You live in families where, where Jesus is loved and praised and worshipped, where, where prayer is an important part of the life of your family. Kids, you can't get to heaven based on your parents' faith. You have a huge advantage. You'll give an account for this advantage before God. You need to trust in Jesus yourself. All of us need to consider this. The Jews had many privileges. Brothers and sisters, we have more. We have more privileges than even those Jews who Jesus confronted. And so we need to ask ourselves, what are, what are you and I doing with our privileges for the glory of God? Are we seeking to advance the kingdom of God? Or are we giving God a return on His investment in us? Or are we behaving like those wicked servants? Beating them and sending them away empty-handed. Listen. Maybe in your heart you're nodding in agreement with what I'm saying here. Maybe maybe like that cleanup crew at our house, maybe, maybe you're, you're shaking your head at the wickedness of those servants. But the question must be asked. How will you respond to the Son? Will you cast him out and crucify him? And, and many of us would, would respond like, like they do later on in this, in this passage and say, Surely not. But what is the reality? 
What is the reality? Will you cast Jesus out and crucify him? Hebrews 6 6 says that, that those who fall away from the faith are crucifying again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. You know, I, I've known many people who would have said, Surely not, I would never walk away from Jesus. But they have. And they are guilty of crucifying the Son of God, the Son of God again and holding him up to contempt. This, this should cause all of us to have a, a holy trembling and to prompt, prompt us to pray, to say, God, but for your grace, that would be me. But may you sustain me. May you protect me. May you uphold me through the power of your Holy Spirit. Help me to advance the means of grace that, that you have given me and to, to work hard because of the Holy Spirit's work in me to work out my salvation and fear and trembling because you are working in me to will and to work according to your good pleasure. And that will become the means whereby you do remain by God's grace. But if you acknowledge these things that, that, that you're being taught here this morning and, and don't repent, you are on the same road as those tenants from hell. Matthew 7, 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. It's not just enough to say, Lord, Lord, with your lips, but for Jesus to be Lord, Lord, in your hearts by the work of the Holy Spirit. James 1, 22 to 24 says, be, be doers of the word and not hearers, only deceiving yourselves. For anyone, if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks intently in his natural face in a mirror, for he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. Are you respecting the Son by obeying Him and by worshiping Him? Or are you crucifying the Son by rebelling against Him and rejecting Him? There is no middle ground. There's no middle ground. So with the time we have left, let's consider verses 15b to 19, God's judgment and man's response. Jesus asked in verse 15b, what then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? What's, what's the response? What's he going to do? He just killed his son. God has shown mercy upon mercy, but there is going to come a time when God will show mercy no longer. An escalation of the crime leads to an escalation of the punishment. Any sin against the holy God is infinitely wicked and requires eternal judgment. But this was a direct assault on God. This is an attempt at deicide. This is an attempt to kill God. And we know, as, as with Abby's question, you can't kill God. But it doesn't mean that, that human beings aren't going to try. Matthew 21, 41 includes the response of the people. They get it. He says they will. Uh, Matthew tells that the, 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 the people respond to what Jesus is saying. Is when Jesus asks, well, what, "What's he going to do?" The people respond, "Well, he will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants, who will give him the fruits in their seasons." Jesus is essentially saying the same thing in Matthew twenty sixteen. He will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. He's saying they will be that they themselves will be judged. 
They themselves will be destroyed and they themselves will be cast out. The punishment fits the crime. The Jews would be cast out and Israel would be destroyed in AD 70 and the people would be displaced. They'd be scattered uh, across the known world. That's just a foretaste. That's just the beginning of the judgment that will come upon the people who reject God. There's eternal judgment as well. And Luke includes their response in it, it, with, to, this, to this sentence. The people say, surely not. Now I was wondering, how does that line up with Matthew 21, 41, where they're, where they're saying what he's going to do? And here, when Jesus says that, that what they're going to do, what is going to happen to them, they say, surely not. I, I think it's, it's just simply that the people get it, they understand what Jesus is saying, but they don't like it. They might understand it, but they, they don't like what he's saying. And so Jesus turns and looks at them directly. Quoting Math, or Psalm 118, 22, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This, this, this Psalm promises God's people who are rejected that they will be exalted by God. And Jesus, as God's beloved Son, is rejected by the nations, but is accepted by God and is exalted to the highest place before God. Just as, as, as an aside, but a really important point. When you think about the Psalms, think about them ultimately as finding their fulfillment in Christ. Okay? Think about the Psalms. Don't, don't, don't immediately, don't read the psalm and then jump to your personal application. Okay, the personal application of the psalm comes through its fulfillment in Christ. Okay, as you read the psalms in a Christocentric way, that this, you'll understand what the psalms are really about and you'll have a far greater personal application than you ever would have had otherwise. So this psalm, Psalm 118, is, that is meant to comfort God's people now actually condemns God's people because they're not finding the fulfillment through Christ. They're rejecting Christ. They're the ones who are going to reject the Messiah. So they reveal that they themselves are actually against God, that they've always been against God. And their treatment of the prophets, again, proves it's been true all along. So then in, the, in this in verse 22 of, of Psalm 118, the, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The, the cornerstone it was a, a large foundation stone. It's set, set at the corner of a building. And it, the, this cornerstone, people don't generally build with stone anymore, but, but this cornerstone was, was really the most important stone in the whole building because it, it determined the position of the two wall, adjoining walls. And... And it, it so determined the shape of the whole building. And this also the stone was also very important because it, it bore the weight uh, of the, the two intersecting walls. And so the whole edifice was really supported on this stone. The people of Israel rejected the stone. They, they said, this, this Jesus... He's full of flaws. He's, he's, he's a sinner. He's a blasphemer. He can't support his own weight, not even the weight of the whole building of, of Israel, like, let alone the kingdom of God. And so they reject him. 
They reject Jesus, who is the cornerstone. But Jesus is driving the point home. This is the meaning of the parable. The people will reject the Son of God, and God will condemn the people. But the Son will be exalted. Christ will be exalted to his rightful place. He has become the cornerstone. He is the cornerstone. No matter what men say about him, he is who he is. Now in verse 18, Jesus explains further the consequences of the rebellion. This is a reference to Isaiah 8, 14 to 15. It will become a sanctuary and a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel, a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Many will stumble on it. They will fall and be broken. They shall be snared and taken. These are eternal consequences. They'll be crushed like dust. It's actually literally they'll be, they'll be crushed like, like chaff. And, and I've, I've never been, I, we talked about this a long time ago with, with Ruth, but when they would, when they would winnow the, the grain, particularly barley and Ruth, they would, they would throw, up in the, in the, throw the grain up in the air and the wind would blow the chaff away. I was thinking about this the other day as I was, I was roasting some green coffee beans in my, in my popcorn machine and, and the chaff from the, the, the coffee beans would, would just go up. It's like it was like lighter than the snow. It just blow up and blow away. That's what's going to happen in the sense of these people, that they're going to be like chaff, crushed to pieces, crushed to dust. So finally in verse 19, you see that the religious leaders knew in one sense what Jesus is saying. Now they didn't understand the implications of this. But they understood what Jesus was saying here. They're thinking, how can this nobody challenge us? How dare he? What gives him the right to pronounce judgment on us? And they respond with hostility. Rather than repenting, they actually set out to fulfill what Jesus has prophesied. The scribes and the Pharisees sought to lay hands on him at that very hour, for they perceived that he had told this parable against them, against, against them, but they feared the people. Now, they didn't seek to lay hands on Jesus to anoint him for ministry. They wanted to arrest him. They wanted to kill him. We saw this last week. They, they wanted to destroy Jesus, but they were afraid of the people. And so in God's providence, the timing wasn't quite yet. These, these men from the Sanhedrin can't destroy Jesus yet. So what they're going to try to do, again, they're going to try to discredit him so the people won't stand in their way. And we're going to see over the, the next couple of weeks is they're, they're going to try to discredit Jesus. We'll see how that goes for them. We'll see that somehow, even, even through all this, even though Jesus again turns the tables on them again and again, that, that somehow they win the hearts of the people and turn the people against Jesus. And Jesus is revealed full well that he knows what their intentions are, but he is going to surrender himself into their hands because he has a mission to fulfill as well. He has plans as well. Plans which must succeed. Again, so there's immediate and immediate context. This is a warning to the Jews, but this is not to Jews. This is a warning to Gentiles as well. Romans, Romans 11, 22. Note then the kindness and severity of God. Severity toward those who have fallen, but God's kindness towards you, provided you continue in his kindness, otherwise you too will be cut off. And I have to say, frankly, I'm very concerned for the Western church. 
We are arrogant if we think this could not happen to us. As we see church after church following the ways of the world, rejecting the word of God, rejecting the gospel, and, and just adopting whatever latest fad or ever, whatever latest sin is, is coming out. We're arrogant if we think it couldn't happen to us. Just think about the churches in Revelation. These churches had apostolic teaching, real apostolic teaching. And none of those churches in Revelation 2 and 3 exist anymore. The destruction of Jerusalem is only a foretaste of the destruction that is to come. It's a foretaste of God's final judgment through the Son. So ask yourself, I'll ask for you, is this parable about you? You know when you, when you listen to, to a sermon and it feels like the preacher is speaking directly to you? Well, it's not me. Okay, it's not, not really me speaking directly to you in that moment. It's the Holy Spirit speaking to you. But some people's consciences are, are so seared that they think it's about the person sitting next to them. They're not thinking about how it applies to them directly. You know, I'm reminded of, of a couple of, of really poignant examples of this. I remember the, the, you, probably most of you have seen that Paul Washer sermon where he's at a youth conference and, and he's talking about the worldliness in, in the young people in the church. And he's saying, like, just listing, it's a laundry list of, of what, they're, what the world is doing and, and what so many worldly people who claim to be Christians are doing. And then the people applaud. And, and Paul Washer stops and, and says, I don't know why you're clapping. I'm talking about you. You could have heard a pin drop. He's saying it's through tears. Or R.C. Sproul at, a, at another conference when, when somebody, it's a, a question and answer period and, and somebody, somebody says, well, isn't, isn't God too harsh by pronouncing eternal judgment on Adam and Eve for eating the fruit of the garden? And R.C. Sproul turns and says, what's wrong with you people? Friends, when you think the preacher's talking to you, stop and pay attention. Again, it's not me. I'm, I'm trying not to eyeball you as I, as I talk about this because I don't know what's in your heart. But if you're feeling, you're feeling conviction, it's from the Holy Spirit. Listen to him. Don't let distractions, don't let excuses harden your heart against the word that is preached. Don't respond like the men of the Sanhedrin. Don't don't respond like they did to this parable. Don't harden your heart against Jesus. The Jews have experienced God's mercy again and again, but they reject it again and again. They rebel against God again and again. And, and the, the pinnacle of this is by literally handing Jesus over to be killed. You understand that you are guilty of that as well. And God is going to send judgment on them. This is not just about Israel. It serves as a warning to the church in every age. It serves as a warning to you. Do not reject God's mercy. Do not reject God's Son. Let's pray together. Almighty God, we praise you for your word. We praise you for Jesus Christ, the word of God incarnate. Who came to this earth and took on human flesh 
Jesus Christ, truly God and truly man, who lived the perfect love for you, Heavenly Father, and the perfect love for his neighbor, and yet died as a lawbreaker, guilty for every sin that your elect had ever committed or ever would commit, giving up his life to the hands of sinful men, but ultimately giving up his life to your wrath. As Father, you poured out your wrath on him in our place. Lord, we pray that, that you would help us all to turn to Christ and receive comfort through the gospel, receive forgiveness and righteousness through the gospel. We know that Jesus won the day. He did not stay dead. The, those wicked tenants did not ultimately have their way. On the third day, you rose from the grave, Lord Jesus, victorious over their, over them and their sin. And Lord, victorious over our sin as you bore the wrath in our place. Help us, Lord, to worship you for who you are, to respond to you with repentance and faith every day, and to grow in the likeness of Christ for the glory of your name, so that you would have the fruit from our lives that you deserve, and that your church would be advanced through our example, and through our word, so that your name will be glorified for all eternity. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.